Welcome to the ASBMR Speaks podcast. My name is Dr. Peter Ebling, President of ASBMR, and I am proud to present the only podcast dedicated to discussing the latest developments in bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal research. ASBMR is the Society of Basic Translational and Clinical Scientists that make observations that spark discovery with flow from the bench to the bedside and back from the bedside to the bench again. This two-part series is hosted by Dr. Michael McClung, the founding director of the Oregon Osteoporosis Center in Portland and an internationally recognized clinician, researcher, and educator in osteoporosis and metabolic bone diseases. Throughout these episodes, he will speak with two pioneers in the osteoporosis treatment field, Socrates Papapoulos and Felicia Cosman. These well-known ASBMR members have been critical in harnessing the genetics of high bone mass disorders for their translation into a potent and now widely used anabolic therapy for osteoporosis, Ramosuzumab. Be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to tune in for future episodes. Thank you for joining us. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael McClung from the Oregon Osteoporosis Center in Portland. I welcome you to this ASBMR Speaks podcast, the first of a two-part series on the role of sclerostin in bone metabolism and the development of anti-sclerostin therapy for osteoporosis. Today, I'm very pleased to introduce my good friend and colleague, Dr. Socrates Papapoulos, who is a professor of medicine at the Leiden Center for Bone Quality in the Netherlands. Welcome, Socrates. Thank you a lot for joining us today for this discussion. Thank you very much, Mike, for uh, having me here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, particularly on these topics. Good. So before we begin, let me make a brief introduction of Dr. Papakoulos. After medical school training at the University of Athens in Greece, he did postgraduate work with two pioneers in bone metabolism, Dr. Jeffrey O'Reardon in London and then Professor Olaf Byfoot in Leiden. And that led to his long-term relationship with that university. Since 1974, Socrates has made many important contributions to our field in various areas, including elucidating the importance of active vitamin D metabolites for the treatment of hypoparathyroidism and renal osteodystrophy, and many of the studies, early studies with bisphosphonates, ranging from basic biology to its clinical applications for the treatment of Paget's disease and osteoporosis. But pertinent to today's discussion about sclerostin, for the past 20 years, Socrates and his group in Leiden have been instrumental in the identification of the osteocyte as the main source of sclerostin and inhibitor of bone formation, and that the target of sclerostin was the Wnt signaling pathway. His group also described clinical phenotypes of disorders ultimately shown to be due to sclerostin deficiency, and including, he was the first to show that sclerosteosis was related to a mutation in the SOS gene that was ultimately shown to result in sclerostin deficiency, and it was these findings that ultimately led to the development of anti-sclerostin therapy for osteoporosis. In recognition of his many contributions to our field, Dr. Papapoulos was the recipient of the prestigious Frederick Barter Award 
in 2015, given to an ASBMR member in recognition of outstanding clinical investigation in disorders of bone and mineral metabolism. My association with Socrates began at the Henry Ford Bone Symposium in Detroit in the early 1990s, where he impressed me with his remarkable clinical expertise across the whole range of diseases discussed at that symposium. Subsequently, with interaction with him in places around the world, I have come to appreciate his skill as a teacher. He has a special ability to distill and explain complicated issues in ways that are interesting, understanding, and most important, practical for we non-scientists. So Socrates, let me begin our discussion by asking first how you became interested specifically in the field of bone and mineral metabolism. What, what attracted you to that field? First, thank you very much, Mike, for your uh, very kind introduction. I mean, reminding me the time we have spent together all these years. And it, it is good that we don't show in a video because people would see me blushing with all these <laughs> things you said. And it was a patient. I, it was back in uh, 1973, it was during my training in internal medicine in Athens then, where I came across a young man with primary hypothyroid. At that time, there was no PTH assay available, and we were trying to do various things to make the diagnosis. And it was these patients that led me to the Jeffrey Reardon's laboratory later. And of course, this was the basis of my PhD thesis at that time. So that's how I got into the field. I had decided to become an endocrinologist, but this particular young man led me to the calcium metabolism. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It's common among our colleagues. That story is common where, where a specific patient led to the development of an interest that, that had exactly the same situation, except that happened after my training as a thyroid person. And then uh, while I was already a faculty member, had a patient with hyperparathyroidism that led <laughs> me in, into <laughs> calcium metabolism as well. A again, because there was no assay for PTH back in those years. <laughs> but we want to focus our attention on sclerosin and, and yep. your role in that. So but before we talk about your and your group's role in that, let me ask you to briefly describe for the listeners the, the clinical features of the two diseases that you were involved with, both sclerosteosis and Van Buchem's disease. So yes, sclerosteosis and Van Buchem's disease belong to the group, the so-called craniotubular hyperostosis. So they, uh, they affect the skull mainly and uh, uh, the long uh, bone. And these are uh, autosomal recessive diseases, uh, genetic defects, and uh, they're very rare. There are about 100 patients with sclerosteosis uh, described, 66, I mean, two-thirds of those come from South Africa, of the uh, group, I mean, the Afrikaner population mm -hmm. of South Africa, whereas Fabulum's disease is much more rare there are about 32 patients described, nearly all of them originating from a small village in uh, the Netherlands. So the main problems with these people is the entrapment of the cranial nerves because of the increase, the tremendous bone growth. 
the disease is characterized by tremendous bone growth, and uh, in the skull, it, and it uh, results in entrapment of various cranial nerves with the uh, accompanying symptoms. I mean, facial palsy, uh, we see hearing loss, and particularly in the patients from South Africa, the more serious complication is the increase in intracranial pressure that may lead to premature death of uh, some of these patients. Right. So d- diseases of high bone mass characterized by bony overgrowth during years of growth that then lead to the central nervous system uh, compression syndromes. That hit. So again, as you mentioned, these are both very rare diseases. I've never seen a patient with either of those diseases in my almost 50 years in the field. Uh, but how did you and your group in Leiden become involved with the studies uh, of, those, of those patients? Yeah, first of all, don't forget I said that they are Fabuchum's disease. I mean, Fabuchum was a professor of medicine in uh, the University of Groningen in uh, the north of the Netherlands, where this uh, fishing village, close to the fishing village. So therefore, we are dealing with Fabuchum's disease is more or less a Dutch disease. So when I was in uh, when uh, in Leiden, I mean, we had a couple of such patients, but the real patients that made me really, I mean, uh, fascinated with this disorder was a 10-year-old tall boy with a big head, a, fa- a facial palsy, and a hearing aid. When I saw this patient for the first time, I was very much intrigued by the uh, whole picture and what might uh, mean to him as a patient, and uh, what can we do for him? Because as you know, there wasn't anything to be done. And that's how my personal involvement started. And at the end of the 1990s, when the investigation, genetic investigation started, the head of our lab, Clemens Lewick, was in touch with people of uh, Celtech who had started looking at the uh, genetic defect in sclerosteosis and Fabuchum's disease later. And at the same time, there was the other group in Belgium by Wim van Gaal doing the same thing. So mm-hmm. through this connection with Clemens, we came in touch with the uh, CELTA group and we provided material for further analysis. And that's how the uh, SOS gene and the defects of it were identified. Right. Was it difficult interacting with the, the patients in the, the small remote fishing village? Were they yes. receptive to people inquiring about the nature of their unusual disease? Very difficult because this village used to be an island which was isolated culturally, if you like, and religiously mm-hmm. uh, from the rest. And there were fishermen. And back in uh, the 17th century, I mean, in, I think it was 1630 or something, they had a plague epidemic there, which eliminated a very big part of the population, leaving about 151 inhabitants only. And this small group probably came to Cosanguinus uh, marriages, and they have identified a family back in 1750 or something, where the whole thing started. So... There were, it was an isolated community that became part of the mainland mm-hmm. uh, after the uh, Second World War. So they were very suspicious, first of all, 
of any medical approach because they had been approached earlier on when the uh, gene uh, investigations were done, and then they didn't hear anything. And when we went there to talk to them and decide what, how we move further, the first question was, okay, doctor, this is fine. And what can you do for us? Right. This is the typical question of patients with rare disease. Sure. And, you know, this was a very difficult question. And at that time, just by chance, we were treating one patient with very severe disease with increasing intracranial pressure with prednisone and uh, had responded to the treatment. So I, had to, I, I could say, this is it. We're doing something. But uh, this stayed with me for some time and brought me to my next patient and colleague now from South Africa, mm. which was a young man who studied biology and decided to move into doing a PhD on a potential treatment for sclerosis. And uh, we came together and I realized all this problem and uh, I tried to help him. In fact, I mean, uh, you know, I had been asked by Bloomberg and the BBC to give an interview and I said, you don't need me, you need him. <laughs> so he had this exposure. He managed to raise money from South Africa and fortunately, UCB decided to help him and he ended up in the UK in their laboratories and started working on his PhD, trying in animals, trying to develop a treatment for uh, sclerosis. So I feel that uh, I answered the wish of that particular person in the beginning, and I hope that this research will go further. Yeah. So sclerosis and von Buchen's being high bone mass disease, they're similar to other osteosclerotic diseases, but most of those diseases are associated with bone brittleness. So what... Uh, how did you figure out that sclerosis was something different than just osteopetrosis? I mean, this was amazing again, because it goes back to what we were discussing, namely the patient and how. When we had this gathering with the uh, families and the patients trying to plan our uh, larger investigation, I was asking them about uh, accidents. Because first of all, I say, has anybody broken a bone? And I didn't get any answer. <laughs> and then I asked the next question and I said, has anybody of you been involved in an automobile accident? And then I said, raised his hand and said, I. And then I thought, ah, now we have it. And I said, what happened? You know, he said, I was crossing a street with my brother and we weren't so careful. And then on the other side, from the other side came a Mercedes. And I said, what happened? And she replied, you should have seen the Mercedes. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, the, uh, the car hit them and they didn't break it. He didn't break anything. Instead, there was uh, a big dent in the uh, hood of the Mercedes. The Mercedes had to go to the garage for a repair and nothing happened to him. So this said immediately that we are dealing with a disease with very strong bones. The second indication of all this was when I was talking to a man who had devoted his life to the care of patients, such sclerosis patients in South Africa, that was Hermann Hammersmann, who died in March 2019. He was an ENT surgeon. We were discussing the problems 
And he said that they had in South Africa to develop special surgical instruments in order to be able to operate in these patients because the ordinary instruments were breaking when they were trying to get in. So they were dealing with very hard, strong bone, an indication that uh, this bone was very good quality, as we showed later. So and this combination of stories and indicated that the bones were very different from what we see in patients with osteoporosis and brittle uh, bones. Uh, all of that together just emphasizes uh, a thing that I'm sure you and I both agree about. It's so important in clinical research to pay attention to the patient, not just to have an idea and uh, get a database and deal with all the numbers. But what makes clinical research be exciting is if there's a patient at the end of it that both gives you the ideas and gives you an objective of doing something to, in the long run, be useful for those patients. Mike, I wouldn't agree more with you. And you know, for all these years, that's why I'm emphasizing that. Because yeah, obviously, sure. with the help of the European Union, we did the two big studies, one in South Africa and the other in the Netherlands, where we characterized further everything. But I would like to emphasize what were initiatives or the, uh, if you like, the first things that made us thought about what's going on there and why this disease is different from any other things we had seen right. up until now. I mean, so after interacting with the patients and and appreciating that abnormalities in the SOS gene and sclerosis was involved in disease. Do you recall a specific moment when you appreciated that developing a therapy that blocked the effect of sclerostin might be important for the treatment of osteoporosis? Yes. And it's very interesting because, first of all, we looked at the data. If you look then at the biopsy from such a patient, it's an amazing picture. And compared to a healthy, I mean, a bone vibes, an earlier crest bone vibes, from a healthy person, you immediately recognize you don't have to be a pathologist, you just see it. the enormous thickness of the cortical bone. So it was a tremendous bone there. The second question was is that bone good? We had all these indirect evidence, of course. But then, we examined that in detail. That is, let's say, in inverted commas, the quality of that bone in collaboration with a group uh, of Vienna, Paul uh, Roschger, and Lefteris Pascali. And the properties of that mineral, of the mineralized bone, were fantastic. So you have too much bone of great quality. And then you say, okay, how is this done? We had done all these investigations. However, what was, I think, the turning point is looking at the literature, something which I'm afraid many of our young colleagues always look at the most recent paper. So I went back and I found a publication by the American group, I mean, Steve Teitelbaum was involved into that, back from 1983, where they described the biopsy finding of a patient with sclerosteosis at that time, was sclerosteosis, it was uh, confirmed later on with a gene, but at that time it was called sclerosteosis clinical diagnosis, but the source gene was not known. And they described the following. 
they found a tremendous increase in bone formation with a normal or decreased osteoclastic resorption. They had a decreased number of osteoclasts. And they say at the end, although the disease is mainly due to increased bone formation, it cannot be excluded that there is a disturbance perhaps in remodeling and uncoupling or so because something else is happening. And how right they were, because this immediately brought to us a story. Now, we have this excellent bone and we have this finding. Is it perhaps something that we can move further with? And then you can say, okay, if we do something, I mean, shall we take these old, I mean, fragile lady and make and give her a treatment which makes her a strong lady, but with a big head? I mean, we don't want to do that. We didn't want to do that, right. obviously. And so what encouraged us that this might be a very good treatment were the findings of the heterozygous, uh, of the carriers of the disease. Because particularly for sclerosteosis, I mean, in the survey we did in South Africa, we found that all of them had Z-score above zero, some of them going to Z-scores up to plus three or so. Mm -hmm. They didn't have any of the signs or symptoms of the disease, and they didn't report any fractures. So therefore, it appeared that with a dose of the gene defect could generate bones that were very strong, which is extremely good for thinking about developing a treatment that would be devoid of complications. Oh, that's great. So what's it like knowing that your studies of those patients and the basic science about SOST gene abnormalities, what's it like knowing that all of those studies have now led to the availability of a unique and very effective treatment for patients with osteoporosis? I mean, it's fantastic. But first of all, let me say that, okay, I mean, I'm not claiming that we were the ones <laughs> no. that uh, uh, did that, okay? There were many people that did fantastic work uh, in that. And uh, of course, the people in South Africa that described the disease, I mean, uh, uh, Professor Baiton in uh, South Africa was one of the pioneers studying uh, the uh, clerosteosis. But at the end, it, uh, you know, it's satisfying. And this was the second time. Eh? And uh, I mean, I'm so happy because, I mean, you know, I have been involved in the dysphosphonation for many years. And it was then, I was younger, of course the feeling of identifying the molecular target for the first time of nitrogen-containing dysphosphonase, and a colleague, uh, Ermond van Beek, together with Clemens Levick, and uh, we did it. So, you know, then we had the dysphosphonase, I mean, uh, identify the target here with sclerosteosis, uh, defining, if you like, the whole pattern of biochemical and clinical in the two big studies uh, we did that led to two treatments of it. The first was known, but yeah. the other two were related, let me say, related yeah. to two of the most important treatments we have currently sure. for uh, disease. I mean, that's, uh, that's great. Well, let me shift gears and talk uh, in a more general thing as we wind up here. By every measure, you've had a very successful career as a physician scientist. What advice or information would you offer to young physicians entering the field of bone and mineral metabolism? Look at your patients, get the idea, work hard, and make hypotheses and try to test this hypothesis. But the patient should be the center. You know, 
it's the story everybody says from the patient to the lab and back and right. so on. And but uh, particularly here, we did. Uh, I mean, the second was different because uh, we went from the patient to the lab, and then we didn't go to this ward. We went to the other ward because we started. <laughs> let's say from <laughs> I wouldn't call it the children's ward, but something like that. <laughs> we went to the lab and we ended up in geriatric ward. Right. Which is, I mean, you know, also uh, extremely, <laughs> it's fascinating and very rewarding. <laughs> uh, uh, well, that's, that's fantastic. Well, Socrates, this has been a, a wonderful discussion of reliving your journey through these sorts of things. So I very much appreciate your sharing your, your experiences and your thoughts with us today. Thank you very much, Mike. It has been a great pleasure to discuss this particularly uh, with you, because as you said, we share uh, many uh, common uh, beliefs and uh, stages in our sure. career and our approaches. Thank you very oh, much good. for having okay. this opportunity. All right. And then let me thank all of you for listening to this podcast. I hope you'll join me for the second part of the series in which I will discuss with Dr. Felicia Cosman the development of antiserostin therapy for osteoporosis. So thank you for your listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASBMR Speaks podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast streaming platform and stay tuned for our next installment coming soon.